do have a request. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Father, we come before you and we thank you and we praise you for this Holy Sabbath day and uh, for uh, being near your people, uh, especially on this most holy day. We pray for thy presence. We pray for the presence of the Holy Spirit and for angels to surround us here as we come to worship thee and to learn from your inspired writings. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus who died at Calvary for our sins. And we pray that the Holy Spirit will live in our hearts and reign in our hearts uh, that we may uh, bring glory to, to Thee by keeping our eyes upon Jesus, having that communion with Jesus. We may learn uh, what sins that we may have that need to be put away. Uh, Lord, I pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to be humble and to be meek and to be more like Jesus. And Father, we lift up before You uh, Susan's cousin, Michael, you know the situation very well. Uh, they have an unborn uh, baby who has right now an enlarged kidney. And so we pray that your hand will be very near there and touch this dear infant one uh, that may be, it may be healed and that your name may be praised and glorified because of it. We pray for those who couldn't be here today. We think of Jerry. We don't know whether maybe right now she's ill or or what may be her case, and we pray that you be very near to her. Those on our prayer list, we pray that you will be very near to each one of them as we lift them up to thee. We know that you are the great physician. And Father, we uh, also pray for uh, the funds needed for the church to operate and to, to spread the gospel. And for those in financial binds, I have medical bills and, and others just bills to sustain themselves. And we pray that you will uh, bless in each every one uh, to your honor and glory. Now, Father, I pray that you give me the words to speak this morning, that hearts may be touched, may hearts be open to hearing this truth, that people will be prepared when Jesus comes. We thank you so much, Father, for hearing this prayer, for I pray it in the name of Jesus, who is worthy to be praised. Amen. Well, I've entitled this particular message, uh, be ready, very simple, be ready. And it's uh, something that I believe, I believe that as we study God's Word, He's going to teach us truth by His Holy Spirit if we open our hearts to Him. Do you believe that? Amen. I mean, what good would it be the Holy Spirit to come if our hearts aren't ready to be taught? It'd be a waste of time and effort, wouldn't it? And I believe that He wants us to be ready for the coming of Jesus. What about you? He wants us to help others to be ready as well. Do you believe that? Are you ready for Jesus to come? I tell you, I'm ready. I've been ready for a good while. Uh, but I know there's a work for us to do. Let me ask you this. Are you ready for what lies ahead of the kingdom? There's some things that are going to happen in our lifetime, I believe, friends, uh, that, uh, that are going to shock us. Things are not going to be the same again. Are you ready? Recently, we heard the Pope and his helper say that the Protestant protest is over. Did you know that? Did you hear about that? And the call was made by the Pope to come back to the Church of Rome. Come back to the Mother. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. Do you believe that? It should strengthen our faith, friends, in the truth of God's Word and His end-time prophet. For she predicted that the Pope would do this. But more than that, it should remove any scales from our eyes as to our spiritual condition as to whether we're ready or not for the final events of this world. So I'll ask you, are you ready? When you hear what the Pope says and you see prophecy being fulfilled, are you ready? God is telling us to prepare. He is telling us to be ready. Let me ask you this. Have any of you had the frustrating experience of not getting to the plane or bus or train on time? Has that ever happened to you? I've never had that experience, but I've watched it happen to others. I was at an airport in Washington one time waiting for boarding and over the speaker you could hear a final call for another flight that was boarding at the gate next to my flight. And you know, you don't, you're sitting there waiting for your flight 
waiting for your gate to open up. You're not doing a whole lot, and you, you just hear these things. You see these things, and I observe people. <laughs> I kind of watch. And that's what I was doing this time. I found it rather humorous that uh, they made the last call about six times in five minutes uh, before closing the door. I mean, they were really making sure. Now, I appreciated that because maybe I'd be running late someday, and they were making the call, making the call, making the call. Much like we as God people, we're to be making the call, making the call, making the call, aren't we? About two minutes after they closed the door, I saw a guy sprinting from the other end of the concourse toward the gate. Buddy, he was flying. And he was running as fast as he could. He had his overnight case with him. And he bolted up to the counter and asked if he could get on the plane. And the attendant told him it was too late. Not only were the doors closed, the plane was already away from boarding and was heading out towards the runway. And this poor guy looked out that plane and, I mean, there it was. It was the one he wanted to be on. But he was just a little bit too late. And I, I remember then seeing this same guy sitting at one of the bars when I first entered the concourse area. Just because the way he was dressed was just, it was like it caught your eye. And I remembered, oh yeah, he was sitting back at the bar. He wasn't ready for his flight. And I think there are many Christians today, they're sitting at the bar of Babylon, and they're going to miss their flight. They're going to miss the time that Jesus comes. They're not going to be ready. It's frustrating when you're not ready. That time he spent on the other things caused him to what? Miss his flight. Now I'm sure he, of course with flights, you know, you can go and you get booked on a different flight or whatever, but still, the frustration I could see in this guy, you know, reminded me of the statement that Jesus made in the, some of these parables where the people were in outer darkness and there was gnashing of teeth. He was just so upset. The Bible says that at the end of time there are going to be a lot of people who will not be ready. White is the gate. And there are many people, the great majority, are going down that way. Straight is the gate for the people of God. Isn't that true? It's going to be a terrible experience when you realize that now it is too late to get ready. You either had to be ready or you will not be ready at all. Do you believe that? And when I come to the end of the, the road of this world, whether it is for death or translation, I want to be ready for Jesus. What about you, friends? Do you want to be ready? you want to be ready for Jesus? when He comes. How do we get ready? I want to tell you the story of a man that when he came to the end of his life, he was ready. Take your Bibles and, and go to 2 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to spend some time on these verses here. We're going to, I'm going to refer to these off and on throughout uh, the message here this morning. But what we read here is the dying testimony of a man that was ready. And this is what I want to talk to you about. Because this is in the Bible for a reason, and it's for us. So that we can understand, take this message, and we can become ready as this man was. This is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy just a short time before he was beheaded. He knew that he was going to be martyred. <coughs> Excuse me. He knew that he was very soon going to give his life as a sacrifice for the, the cause of the gospel. But he was not sad about it. Because he was ready. And he said he was ready. Notice this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am now ready to be offered. And the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love His appearing. Does that sound like somebody who's sad? It almost sounds like, thank God my work is done. I'm ready. Doesn't it sound that way to you? I can rest. I fought a good fight. I did everything I could possibly do. I did all the Lord asked of me. And I know there's a crown waiting for me. Paul's not boasting in himself, is he? He's trusting. Notice he says, I have kept the faith. I believe in the word of Jesus. He's the one who promised a crown for me. I finished the race. We're going to talk about that in a moment. He said, I'm ready. Do you want to be able to say that you're ready? You know, it's not going to be good enough to be almost ready. You know, Ellen White makes an interesting statement. She says, to be almost but not completely saved is to be completely lost. Did you catch that? To be almost but not completely saved is to be completely lost. I think we need to take that into consideration. Contemplate that very seriously. Because there are many, the vast majority of Christians, who are not completely saved. But they think that they are. And that's a dangerous condition, isn't it? When you come up to the gate and they close it and the doors to the plane are already shut, I mean, you are almost there, but you're lost for that flight, aren't you? You were almost there, but you were not there. And friends, there are going to be a lot of people in this world that are almost saved, but they will be totally lost. Don't let that happen to you. What can we do so that we will be ready? What good will it do in the day of judgment for you or me to say, well, I was almost saved? Is it really worth it? Is that darling, delicious sin, as the former pastor we had used to say, is it really worth eternity? Well, I was almost saved. I'm going to tell you, that's not going to bring you any comfort. It's not going to do you any good. The Apostle Paul did not say he was almost ready. <laughs> he said, I am ready. So you need to ask yourself, are you ready? Well, somebody says, I'll get ready tomorrow. <laughs> Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard him? Have you been talking to somebody, witnessing to somebody? And, yeah, I, I'm interested in that, but I don't have time today. Has that ever happened to you? Friends, there are millions of Christians in the world that if you ask them today, they would say, no, I'm not ready to die today, but I'm going to get ready. There are stories in the Bible about people who made that decision. They knew they were not ready right then, but they said, I'm going to get ready when I have a better opportunity. Remember Felix said, when I have a better opportunity, Paul, I need a better opportunity. When that happens, I'll become a Christian. Well, Felix wasn't saved. And there are a lot of people waiting for those better opportunities. Those better opportunities, though, don't come. You know why? The very best opportunity that you have to be saved is today. That's why they don't come later on. Tomorrow will, be, will not be as good as today. But tomorrow will be better than the next day. But it's still not as good as today, is it? Every day that I go down the path of sin, my heart is becoming harder and it's becoming harder for me to overcome. That does not mean that it cannot happen, but it is becoming more difficult for it to happen. 
So your best opportunity, as the Apostle Paul said, today is the day of salvation. Today is your best opportunity. Your best opportunity to be saved. To become ready. Is the Holy Spirit telling you that you're not ready, but you want to be ready? Because that's what He does. And I hope He's telling you that. And the only way you'll be ready tomorrow is if you decide, I'll get ready today. That's why the Apostle Paul could say near the end of his life, I'm ready. I fought the good fight. I'm ready. And I'll let you in on something. This was not the first time that he had been ready. You don't just go down the path of sin all your life and then all of a sudden near the end of your life make a change. People believe that. They believe, oh, on my deathbed. But I, you know, I, recently I spent time in the hospital and I walked around and people don't do that. They really very rarely do that. Now God used that opportunity on me for me to look at myself and, and reflect upon my life. But most people in the hospital, they come out of the hospital, they don't change. There's nothing different. Now, I'm not saying it's impossible. Don't get me wrong. But it's very difficult to do, and very few people succeed in doing it. I'll tell you that. How was it that the Apostle Paul was able to say, I'm ready? Well, let me share that with you. If you go to Acts chapter 9. We're going to begin with verse, verse 3. This was when Paul was on the Damascus Road. Acts 9, verse 3. It said, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. As the Holy Spirit was pricking Paul's heart for a while. And he kept putting it away and putting it away. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Notice, Paul changed his whole attitude. What do you want me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And what Jesus did there, he, he was putting Paul in, or you say Saul at this time, in connection with his church, his true church in Damascus. You'll learn what to do. Go there. And so he went into Damascus and he was there and he wasn't eating or drinking. So the Bible says he prayed for three days. And what, <coughs> excuse me, what was it that happened to Saul here? Really. This was a turning point in, in Saul's life. What really happened? He was turned completely around, wasn't he? I mean, completely opposite of where he had been. And what do we, we have a word for that. You know what that word is? Somebody who, who turns and goes completely around, changes their direction. I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. Conversion. The word in the New Testament that's translated conversion is a word that means to turn around. Paul was converted. He came to persecute Christians, but he left there preaching for Christians. This was Paul's conversion experience. And it began when he saw himself in a new light. And no pun intended there. But he saw himself differently. And Jesus met him face to face to bring that together. Paul was close. He had all the knowledge. He had a knowledge of the Scriptures. He understood what faith was. He even understood what conversion was. He understood these things. But he was going down the wrong course, wasn't he? Now this should bring us hope because we can have all that too and be going down the wrong road and Jesus can come to us and say, wait a minute, you need to be over here. The key as we learned in Sabbath school is 
what's our decision? Are we going to go the way of John as an example or Judas as an example, right? When Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? Some thoughts started going through his mind that he, he really never had before. And he realized what he had done to Jesus. To God. And by putting men and women to death and, and trying to put them in prison, he had hurt the heart of God. That's what he realized. He thought he was doing God's service before, but he realized he wasn't. He was doing the exact opposite. And you know what he really realized? When your boy let down, he realized what a terrible, wretched person he was. And friends, when you come to see Jesus, if you're honest, you're going to see when you line yourself up to him how wretched you are. And the question is, what are you going to do? Paul still had a choice, didn't he? And what Paul said was, what would you have me to do, Lord? Because I'll tell you, unless you and I realize how terrible and wretched we are, there's not much of a chance that we will be converted. Nor will we be, we be changed in our hearts and lives as long as we think we're pretty good. And that's what Christians do today. When they sin, they think, well, I still do some good things. I hear they come right out and say it. Well, really, I'm a good person. I'll tell you this. When we judge ourselves, that's the key. How do we judge ourselves? Do we judge ourselves and realize that we're we're really terrible, and I'm, I'm speaking spiritually here. Are we terrible and wretched, or are we pretty good? Not I mean deep down. We, we didn't. Our good works outweigh our bad works. That's what most of religion today teaches. As long as your good works you know, outweigh your bad works, oh, you're going to heaven. I've been at, at, at funerals, where the person was not a Christian ever in their entire life, yet they got preached right up into heaven. How's that fair to somebody who tries to live as Jesus lived? <laughs> it isn't, is it? And we know the Bible tells us that God is a just God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees thought they were pretty good, didn't they? Not too many of them were converted, though. One of the first steps in conversion is the realization that I have a heart or, or, or my spirit in which there dwells no good thing. And that's what happened to Paul. Paul said in Romans seven eighteen, he said, For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And when you read Romans chapter 7, this is Paul talking about the, the conflict that he had within himself. He wanted to do the good things, but he didn't have the strength and power to do it. Self took over. And then you go on into chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, and he talks about how he gained the victory, and it was through Jesus Christ. He gave him grace and strength and the victory so that his desires now were to bring glory to God in all that he did. He still had battles with self, but Jesus gave him the strength and the power to overcome self. And the bottom line is, he's having the struggle and he saw his need of a Savior. He saw himself as a terrible, wretched sinner who had been hurting Jesus by what he had been doing to his followers. And I'm going to tell you, that's one of the first steps of conversion. We have to realize how bad we are and if we don't, we will never have a thorough conversion. And that's what the law, Paul talks about, the law being a schoolmaster. The law being the transcript of the character of God. When we look at the Ten Commandments and we compare our life and our actions, our decisions, even our thoughts, friends, 
to that law, what do we do? What do we see? We're either going to, like we like to do many times, reason it away. We can say, well, the law was done away with with Jesus at the cross. We don't have that law anymore. We're born sinners and that's the way we're going to remain until Jesus comes. I have heard Adventist pastors preach that. It's not biblical. And when Jesus comes back, He's not only going to change our body, He's going to change our character in the moment, the twinkling of an eye. The Bible doesn't teach that. But what if we look at that mirror, as Paul says it, we look at it, we understand, we know the law is immortal, it's binding, and we look at that, what do we see? As he says, as a, a mirror, we start to see defects in us, don't we? As we look to Jesus, we see defects in us. We see that we are a wretched sinner in the need of a Savior. The Bible says that the heart is deceitful. It's wicked. Above all things, it's desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. It's not just wicked. It's desperate. That word desperate means what? You gotta have, you're desperate for something. You really got to have it. It's desperately wicked. It's not just wicked. It's desperately wicked. Above all things. That's what the Bible tells us. Are you going to believe what you think or will you believe what the Bible says? Well, friends, if I'm going to be a Bible-believing Christian, I have to believe what the Bible says about me, don't I? Or I have a false profession. And the Bible says that in me there's no good thing. Any righteousness that I can get has to come from somebody outside of myself, you see. Because I have none in me. All my righteousness is as what? Filthy rags, right? So Paul begins to understand that. He thinks about all the scriptures he had memorized. He thought about where righteousness came from and how his life could be changed. And he repented of his past life. He attempted over and over again to confess to the Jewish people, but they were beyond the point of receiving his confession. On his last visit to Jerusalem, on the steps of the temple, he told the Jews of his experience, of the light that had shone all around him and how it had changed his life. And in the people he had persecuted, he realized that he had been hurting Jesus. His life was changed. He repented and he confessed his sins. People saw it. There was a change in him. And because of the decision he made at that time, he was later able to say, I am ready. In Acts 9 verse 17, Ananias came to him and Paul not only received his physical sight, but he received spiritual eyesight and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then it says, he arose and was baptized in Acts 9.18 and immediately he was ready to preach. Notice what it says in Acts 9.20. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Just like that. You see, Paul had all the tools. He had all the knowledge, but he was heading down the wrong road. And then he met Jesus and he had to make a decision. And Paul made a decision. What will thou have need to do, Lord? And it says immediately, went into the synagogues and preached that Jesus is the Son of God. And Paul preached this story, his testimony, over and over and over again. Look at Acts twenty-two eighteen. 18. This is close to the end of his life. This is his experience later when he wanted to work for his own countrymen. He wanted to confess to them and tell them about Jesus. And this is what happened to him when he was in the temple. Verse 18 it says, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem. This is the Lord speaking to him. For they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned and beaten every synagogue them that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by 
and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Then he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee far hence unto the Gentiles. Paul was attempting in his mind to make things right. He thought that his testimony would turn them around just like he turned around. And the Lord said, no, they're not going to receive your testimony. In other words, don't waste your breath. In fact, it's dangerous for you. So the Lord sent him away from there to the Gentiles. Far away, it said. I find that interesting. Far away. Because not only would they not receive his testimony, they hated Paul. They wanted to murder Paul. Something that we find when we read about Paul, he never got over his experience of holding the garments of those who stoned Stephen. That's why he brings it up here in this passage, towards the end of the book of Acts. It ate at him. We, I remember months ago when we got to this part in the book Acts of the Apostles when we were studying it. It's mentioned there that that was something that Paul virtually could never forgive himself for. And there are things in our life that we look back and there may be things that we look back on and we say, God, I, can, I just can't forgive myself for ever doing that. Do you know something? If God can forgive us, we can let that go. <laughs> that sin bothered him so much that he wanted to confess it and do something to rectify as much as possible what he'd done. And what did the Lord say? You're going to have to leave here. They're not going to listen to you. And so at the end of that experience, he was sent to Caesarea. He related his conversion experience to the Jews in Acts 22. You can read about it. And now he relates it to King Agrippa in Acts 26, starting with Acts 26, oh, verse 19. You can see again Paul's account of his conversion experience here. He concludes by saying to Agrippa, he says, Whereupon, O king Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them at Damascus, and then at Jerusalem, and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. So, wherever he went, Paul was sharing with them his testimony. He made a decision, you see, and he followed through on that decision. Lord, what will thou have me to do? And it took him all around, didn't it? He saw his need of a Savior from sin. He realized how bad he was. And friends, we must all go through that same experience. We've got to see how bad we are. We must realize our need of a Savior and realize how bad we really are. And we do that by looking at the law of God. And then he surrendered. He said, Lord, what will you want me to do and so we have to surrender too don't we I mean have we said Lord I surrender everything to you as my Lord and Savior have you done it today can you honestly say I'm ready if you haven't done it Paul surrendered he repented. And let me tell you, there's no such thing as salvation without repentance. Repentance is sorrow for sin and turning away from it. Not just being sorry. Judas was sorry. But being sorry enough to quit. You see? Paul said in Romans 2 and verse 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. And friends, if we see what our sins have cost Jesus, we'll begin to realize how awful sin is and we'll want to quit. And if we do not want to quit sinning, we've never really understood the cross of Christ. Why? He was nailed there. So Paul, he repented, he confessed. 
he had a lot of confessions to make, don't you think? He had to confess to the Jewish Christians. Can you imagine how humiliating and how terrible it would make you feel to have to go and tell people, I'm sorry, I'm the one that was responsible for the death of your wife or for your husband, for your pastor, your deacon, your elder? He had to make those personal confessions to these people. And there's no such thing as salvation without confessions. Let me tell you something. Sins that are unconfessed are unforgiven. Put that in the back of your mind. Sins that are unconfessed are unforgiven. 1 John 1.9, one of my most favorite scriptures. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And I want you to remember, that scripture begins with the word what? If. It makes it conditional, doesn't it? There's no salvation without confession. I'm going to tell you, don't forget it, because... If you forget it, you'll meet up with your sins in the day of judgment. Because sins that are unconfessed are written in the books of heaven against our names. If we don't confess them, we'll meet them at the end of the millennium. Because they'll still be written there. Paul confessed and then he consecrated himself to Christ as a servant. And from then on, you read in his epistles, he always begins, Paul, a servant. Check that out. It says, Paul, a servant. That's the, uh, from the Greek word doulos, which means a slave. It's you know, translated as slave in some areas. So Paul dedicated his life, everything that he had to Jesus, and from then on he was ready. And the question today is, are you ready? don't get ready in a moment of time at the end of your life, but it's a result of getting ready beforehand. Look what it says, uh, he says to the Romans, and this is, now this is earlier in his, his, his walk, it's not the end of his life, Romans 1.15. So as much as in, is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. From the time that he was on the Damascus road, whatever God wanted him to do, he said, Lord, I'm ready, I'm yours. Can you say that? Because that's a key. Are you ready? Remember that the only way that you will be ready tomorrow is if you decide to get ready today, right? Paul came to the end of his life and he had the wonderful experience that I hope that you and I can have. He said, I'm ready. I don't have any regrets. I made the right decision. I'm ready to meet the Lord. I'm ready to die for Jesus. He said, I'm ready and the time of my departure is at hand. That's what he told Timothy. And yet he recounts very briefly the experience of his life. He says, I have fought a good fight. Well, what is this fight? You know, Paul has a good deal to say about this fight in his epistles. If you read his epistles. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning with verse 24, he talks about his fight to gain absolute control over his body. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain, now they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself shall be a castaway. When he says this, he says, So, I, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. He's describing this battle as a boxing match with real punches, as it were. Not shadow boxing. You know what shadow boxing is. Just punching in the air. As he says, beateth the air. Not as one that beateth the air. Not as one that shadow boxes. 
He's fighting a fight to bring his body into subjection. The fight involves the body's appetites, its passions. He wants to bring them into strip, a strict subjection to the higher powers of his mind so he can have control of it. And he's doing this by faith. And he talks about this fight also in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 10, you can begin there, where he advises us to put on the whole armor of God. You remember that? So that we may be able to resist the devil. He says in verse 12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We have this fight in which we must engage, you see. And friends, one of two things is going to happen to every one of us in this, as well as everybody else in the world. We will either conquer or we will be conquered. There's no neutral ground. There's no Switzerland we can run to. We're either going to conquer or we will be conquered. It's just uh, uh, be conquered. That, uh, it's that simple, really. There is no truce. You realize that? The devil has never given anybody a truce. The devil comes to you and me and we are either going to conquer him or he's going to conquer us. Let me share this with you from Sons and Daughters of God, page 328. Sons and Daughters of God, page 328. In every soul, two powers are struggling earnestly for the victory. Unbelief marshals its forces led by Satan. Take note of that. Unbelief. See? Its forces led by Satan to cut us off from the source of our strength. Faith marshals its forces led by Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Hour by hour, in the sight of the heavenly universe, the conflict goes forward. This is a hand-to-hand fight. Put your bayonets on your rifles. It's hand-to-hand combat here. It's a hand-to-hand fight. And the great question is, which shall obtain the mastery? This question each must decide for himself. In this warfare, all must take a part, fighting on one side or the other. From the conflict, there is no release. From the conflict, there is no release. You're in the conflict whether you like it or not. So there's a war going on. There's only one way you can quit fighting, and that is if you decide to let the devil have the victory. So if you don't want to fight, you're automatically on the devil's side, friends. You either have to fight or you have to surrender. And if you're on the Lord's side, there is no surrender. Here's another statement about this warfare that we're engaged in. And this was written to a young man who was not winning the war. And Ellen White was trying to encourage this young man to fight the fight and to win the war. And this young man had lost some ground and Ellen White was trying to encourage him to fight and win. It's found in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 513. Now, I mentioned earlier today I'm going to talk about the will, and this is the key to victory, friends. It's all about our will. God has given us free will. What do we choose to do? She says to him, she says, Pure religion has to do with the will. Your promises are like ropes of sand, and you regard in the same unreal light the words and works of those in whom you should trust. You will be in constant peril until you understand the true force of the will. You may believe and promise all things, but your promises or your faith are of no value until you put your will on the side of faith and action. If you fight the fight of faith with all your willpower, you will conquer. Are you fighting with everything you have? In this battle? That's the point. Are you fighting with everything you have? God has promised to help you, but He does not promise to help you and me unless we try with everything we have. That's why He talks about it takes a complete sacrifice. You can't just be half-hearted. You've got to be whole-hearted. All our willpower. She goes on, she says, your feelings, your impressions, your emotions are not to be trusted. Well, what's the Bible say about the heart? 
not only is it wicked, it's what? Deceitful it's above it's, it's deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Okay? And this is what she's saying. Your feelings, your impressions, your emotions are not to be trusted for they are not reliable. But you need not despair. It is for you to yield up your will to the will of Jesus Christ. There's a key. What do you do? You yield your will to the will of Jesus Christ. And as you do this, God will immediately, He doesn't wait. There's no probation period. You're not on the clock. <laughs> she says, immediately. God will immediately take possession and work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. Your whole nature will then be brought under the control of the Spirit of Christ and even your thoughts will be subject to Him. You cannot control your impulses, your emotions, as you may desire. But you can control the will and you can make an entire change in your life. So what was the key? She said, yield up your will to Christ. So there's hope for you if you choose. If you decide, Lord, I will fight and I will give it everything I have, the Lord will come to your aid immediately. I like that. Immediately. And give you the victory. And here's what can happen. She's still writing to this young man and she says, Will you not say, I will give my will to Jesus and I will do it now? And from this moment, be holy on the Lord's side? Disregard custom and the strong clamoring of appetite and passion. Give Satan no chance to say you are a wretched hypocrite. Close the door so that Satan will not thus accuse and dishearten you. Say, I will believe. I do believe that God is my helper. And you will find that you are triumphant in God. She even puts the words in our mouths. Telling us what we should say so that we can get help. She tells us what we can pray. And here's the result of that. She says, By steadfastly keeping the will on the Lord's side, every emotion will be brought into captivity to the will of Jesus. Talk faith. Keep on God's side of the line, she says. So we need to yield our will up to Jesus. And we read earlier that it's a war. Hour by hour. Yield the will to God. Hour by hour. Minute by minute even sometimes. It's hand-to-hand -hand combat. But as soon as we yield our will to God, immediately He takes control. And we can have victory. This is what she says. If you do that, you'll find that God will be your helper. Friends, have you chosen to yield your will to Christ so that He can work in you to work a miracle in your life? Because that's what it is, really. It's a miracle. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He said, I fought a good fight. He had to fight it every day, just like you and me. He said, I die daily, remember? Now I know, sometimes people, and I run into this a lot, people are discouraged, very discouraged. And they'll say, I can't resist. I'm too weak. Well, what should we do if we feel that we are so weak that we cannot resist? She speaks to this. The book Temperance, page 112. Here's what we should do. She said, many a man cries in despair, I cannot resist evil. Tell him that he can, that he must resist. He may have been overcome again and again, but it need not be always thus. He is weak in moral power, controlled by the habits of a life of sin. Those who put their trust in Christ, again, yielding the will to Him, are not to be enslaved by any hereditary or cultivated habit or tendency. There is victory in Christ. It's not just talking here about heredity. But if because of my past life I have habits of sin and those habits have had an effect on my character, God says, you're not to be held in slavery by your past habits of sin. There is deliverance in Jesus. And that's good news. That's what the gospel means, isn't it? 
The word gospel means good news. How's it happen? She goes on. Temperance, page 112. She says, The tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man. The power of decision, of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Desires for goodness and purity are right so far as they go, but if we stop here, they avail nothing. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome their evil propensities. They do not yield the will to God. They do not choose to serve Him. And that's the key, isn't it? And that's what Paul did. Have you yielded your will to God? Have you said, I choose to yield my will to Jesus Christ? We must make that decision, friends. We must fight the fight if we want to have victory. There's no victory without a fight. Still in the book Temperance, she says on the very next page, Temperance, page 113, she says, You may believe and promise all things, but your promises and your faith are of no account until you put your will on the right side. If you will fight the fight of faith with your willpower, there is no doubt that you will conquer. These are promises to us. But why is there no doubt that you can conquer? She goes on, she says this. She says, the very feeblest prayer that we can offer, Jesus will hear. He pities the weakness of every soul. Help for everyone has been laid upon Him who is mighty to save. If you yield your will to Jesus and you choose to believe and stay on God's side of the question, God has promised you victory. Do you believe it? That's what it comes down to, doesn't it? He has promised that as you fight the fight of faith, divine power will come into your life. And if you are the weakest person on earth, you can have victory if you yield your will to God and choose to fight. One of the great problems in modern Christianity is that there, is, there are so many people that are not even fighting And if you don't fight, you automatically allow the devil to have victory when he attacks. Paul said, I fought a good fight. And remember, the fight that he's talking about is largely mental, really. And it has to do with our will. If we yield the will to God and we choose to follow God and obey Him, and we begin to exert all the effort we have to do that, because that shows we're not half-hearted, He's promised to help us gain the victory. It says He takes control immediately. I like that. Immediately. He doesn't hesitate. Paul said, I fought the good fight. Then he makes this statement. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I've thought about that uh, many times. And I want to be able to say that when God sees that it's time for me to come the end of my road in this world whether it is again by death translation I finished my course have you noticed maybe you haven't but have you noticed many times the apostle Paul likens the Christian life to running a race I mentioned this earlier he talks about that in fact the word that is translated course could have been translated a race course the people that receive the prize are not the people that begin the race. Rather, the people that finish the race. Isn't that right? You've got to finish it. There are many Christians that have begun the race, but they'll never receive the prize because they don't finish the course. And I want to be able to say when I come to the end of the road, I have finished the course. So first, you've got to be running the race. Are you running in the race? If you want to finish the course, you have to be running the race. You need to be running the race today, not tomorrow. Today's the day of salvation, right? I mean, none of, us, none of us knows how many more days we have to run the race unless the Lord enlightens us to that. So we must be running the race every day if we're going to finish the, the course. Hebrews 12, verse 1. 
Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. This again is Paul talking about running it as a race. But he talks about these besetting sins. All of us have besetting sins, sad to say. It's a part of the sanctification process, having those besetting sins revealed to us. Now, I mentioned earlier today, we don't all have the same easily besetting. Another word for besetting is entangling. You, you know, you get bound up with them, you can't quite get out of them, right? It's a besetting sin, an entangling sin. The thing that is an easily entangling sin for, for one is not the same as for another, isn't that right? But every person has some sin that is easy for that person to become entangled with. They have those tendencies for those particular ones. And the Apostle Paul said, take those sins which are easy for you to be entangled with and lay them aside. Get them out of the way so that you can run the race. You never want to run a race with weights on your legs. Do you know that? Ankle weights. What's it do? It slows you down, doesn't it? Those easily entangling things. You want to get those things off of you. You want to take those weights off. Those obstacles, get them out of the way so you can run the race. There are some Christians that are just spinning their wheels. <laughs> They're not going anywhere in the race because they've not laid aside those easily, easily entangling sins for them. So the Lord has to bring them around and around and around until one of two things happens. Either we'll get the victory over that thing and go on, or we'll keep spinning our wheels and we'll never get to the end of the course. That's what's going to happen. I hope that's not the way your life is. I mean, are you running the race or are you just spinning your wheels? If we don't lay aside the easily entangling sin and run the race, we're not going to be able to say at the end, I'm fi I finished my course, I'm ready. Maranatha, page 58. None will be translated to heaven while their hearts are filled with the rubbish of earth. Every defect in the moral character must first be remedied. Every stain removed by the cleansing blood of Christ. Notice it doesn't say by hard work and scrubbing. They're removed by Christ. But we must aid Him in that, right? cleansing blood of Christ, and all the unlovely, unlovable traits of character overcome. You know, it's really easy for us human beings to look around and say, well, so-and-so is worse than I am. Now, we don't usually verbally say that, do we? We think it in our minds, don't we? Suppose that you know somebody else and they are spinning their wheels in the race. Will it give you any satisfaction at the end of your life to say, well, I did not finish the course, but they didn't either? Sounds like a kid, doesn't it? We need to pity people that are spinning their wheels and not going anywhere. We want to finish the course and we want them to finish it as well. Isn't that true? There are a few things about the gospel. I'm thinking about this entire theme. There are a few things about the gospel that are hard to come to grips with. Some of the things that Jesus said makes us wonder, I think. For example, Jesus said in Matthew 10 and verse 37, He said, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. I don't know too many, at least in my sphere, I don't know too many uh, um, parents that don't love their children. So this is kind of a hard saying. I mean, what, you know. And I'll tell you that there are some Seventh-day Adventists that will go to heaven alone. I'm just putting it out there. It's reality. The people in their very own family will not go along. So we each one have to make that decision, right? Will I run the race? Or will I wait for my family, my friends, or somebody else? I mean, you have to decide for yourself. Your pastor doesn't save you. Your father, your mother, your sister, your brother cannot save you. 
Jesus saves you. And it's an individual decision. Who are you going to put your will in charge of? Yourself or Christ? The decision is yours to make. Yours only whether to accept Jesus and give your will to Him or not. That's what it's about. And I've said this to my children. I've told them. I've said, and I tell it to anybody. What God is concerned with is how we react to His Son. That's what He wants to know. What have you done with my Son? Have you accepted Him? Have you given Him your will? Or have you rejected Him? That's the bottom line with the Father. That's what the judgment's about. Of course, they keep the records of our sins. That, that has to do with you know, punishment and such. But are you going to choose Jesus to be your advocate or are you going to be your own advocate? Think that one through. Hopefully your example and influence as you run the race will influence other people in your family to run the race and be ready when, when the time comes. But we have to face the facts. There will be some families where there will be only one or two that will run the race and the others will spin their wheels because they can't get rid of those entangling, besetting sins. They don't let Jesus help them. You have to decide whether you will run the race and finish the course or wait for somebody else. Maybe a friend or loved one who's just spinning their wheels. I see it all the time. It's pretty sad. The Apostle Paul came to the end of his life and he could say, I finished my course. And then he said, I've kept the faith. I'm going to wrap it up here, friends. He said, I've kept the faith. You know, there were a lot of people who were with Paul who didn't keep the faith. And the Bible actually names some of them. Demas was one. He didn't keep the faith. In fact, it says that he loved this present world more, so he left. Now, why would that be included in the Bible? That's a warning to us, isn't it? There are many things that can cause people, after they start running the race, to get sidetracked. There are some people that before they finish their course, they get sidetracked because they lose their faith. And there are many ways that faith is lost. Ellen White said that one of the ways was people were reading books by infidel authors. Did you know that? I know a number of people that profess to be Adventists and they're into the romance novels and they're into uh, authors from other religions more than they're in the, in the Bible. Now we don't read books too much in our society anymore, really. I don't know. they got the Kindle and all that. We read electronic books, right? But instead of having books, let's say, by infidel authors, they have videos, soap operas, televisions, movies, all kinds of dramatization of things that are not true that weaken people's faith in the Word of God. Even watching... Uh, you go on TED TV, you've heard TED TV. Go on and watch these scientists that come out. and You can watch about science and they'll lead you away from God. You lose your faith. We've got to be careful of those things if we want to keep the faith and be ready for Jesus. And there are a lot of people today I find that are losing their faith because they're spending more time with faithless things than they are with the Word of God that could build up their faith. But the Apostle Paul said, I've kept the faith. And when you come to the end, will you have kept the faith? And let me ask you, who is the one who will receive the crown of righteousness? This is what Paul said, I will receive a crown of righteousness. He said, henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Who is it laid up for? It's laid up for the one that is ready. The one that fights a good fight. The one that finishes the course just as Paul lays out and the one that keeps the faith. So Paul lays out four things there as he's writing to Timothy. 
by his own experience to encourage us to be ready. And I pray that each one of us decides to run the race and finishes the race. I pray that each one of us is ready. Now is the time to get ready. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much again for your holy word, for the example of the Apostle Paul and how you work through him and all the lessons we can learn from his ministry. All that he did was for thee, for he loved Jesus so much. We'd like to be like Paul because Paul was like Jesus. We'd like to be like Jesus. And Father, we want to be ready. <clears throat> so Father, we pray for the Holy Spirit to be in our hearts and in our minds that we're ready today, not tomorrow, that we yield up our will to Thee, that You can work in us to do and to will of Your good pleasure. Father, we give You our hearts and we give You our wills so that we can be ready when Jesus returns. We know it's very soon. We thank You, Father, for this, this gift of salvation through Jesus. And we pray this in His name.